Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Shobhana Xavier. I hope you're doing well and staying safe, and thank you so much for joining me today. In today's episode, we are joined by Daniel Makrovets, an assistant professor of South Asian literature and culture at Northwestern University, and Sunil Sharma, a professor of Persianate and comparative literature at Boston University, as they discuss their edited anthology, Three Centuries of Travel Writing by Muslim Women, which is published by Indiana University Press in 2022. Shaban Lombard Harley is also a professor of global history at the University of Sheffield, is um, also a co-editor, but was unable to join us for the conversation today due to some scheduling conflicts. This collection of travel writings from the late 19th century to the early 20th and mid-20th century capture the fascinating lives of diverse Muslim women as they traveled for religious pilgrimage, political reasons, education, and for leisure. This collection not only recovers the voices of women from a broad range of languages, Urdu, Punjabi, Turkish, and Persian, just to name a few, but also provides the historical and cultural context necessary to understand the full significance of what these women were trying to convey of their experiences in the world. Some fascinating uh, travel excerpts or examples include that of Mirza Khalil and Nur Begum's travel for Hajj. Um, travel pilgrimages also include those to um, Karbala or Sufi shrines. For political reasons, you have examples of the Egyptian Huda Sharawi or Amina Said's travel related to their thinking about feminism, especially in the in the turn of the century, the 20th century. The Indonesian communist Suharti Suwarto's visit to the Soviet Union, a fascinating, fascinating excerpt, or the Indian nurse Miral Nisa navigating her new life in Ohio. These are just a few of the 45 different examples of travel uh, writing that can be found in this anthology. The historical experiences of Muslim women offer a fascinating and understudied point of insight into the role of imperial, colonial, and global history, and just even personal history. 
The original texts gathered are accessible via the accompanying website, um, which is www.accessingmuslimlives.org. A link to that is found here online for you to check out and explore more. This anthology will be of interest to anyone working on travel, colonial history, Muslim women, um, and comparative literature and Islamic studies. It will also be an excellent, excellent resource in many courses that cover a range of topics, be it religious piety, feminism, travel, travel writing, and much, much more. I can't recommend this book enough. In our conversation today, Sunil, Daniel, and I spoke about the genesis of the project, the various genres of travel writing captured here in the anthology, the role of power and access and socioeconomic status that influenced some of the capacity for some of the women to write, the audience for some of the material covered, and some of the fascinating stories of travel relayed in the volume, and how to incorporate the text into courses that you may be teaching. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Daniel Makrovitz and Sunil Sharma about their edited volume with Siobhan Lombard-Hurley, um, Three Centuries of Travel Writing by Muslim Women. Hi, Daniel and Sunil, thank you so much for joining us today on the New Books in Islamic Studies podcast. How are you both doing? Doing well, thank you. Great. Um, so you're here to talk about uh, an edited volume that you did with Siobhan uh, Lambert-Hurley uh, called Three Centuries of Travel Writing by Muslim Women. Uh, we have a tradition in the New Books podcast to start a little bit about your intellectual journey and what led to perhaps this collaboration. Sure, yes. I'm a, Basically, my you know, interests are in uh, pre-modern literature, and this is a little outside of my usual area of research. But uh, travel writing, and especially by women, um, has always been a side interest of mine, both in teaching and research. And this project really came, um, you know, into existence when um, Siobhan and I um, started uh, uh, an earlier collaboration together almost uh, 15 years ago, more than 15 years ago, um, on the uh, life and writings of Atiya Fezi, who was the first um, Indian Muslim woman to um, uh, uh, study in Britain and write about it. There were travelers before then, of course. Um, and um, when we did that project together, it was a book uh, that was published by OUP India. Um, uh, there was a translation of the Atiya Fezi's uh, journal slash travelogue in the appendix. Um, and in the course of uh, translating that, um, you know, um, we became aware of uh, uh, how few travelogues by um, Muslim women and women, you know, generally Asian and Middle Eastern women um, were available um, in comparison to sort of say the situation in Western literature where there had been several anthologies of uh, travel writing by women. Um, so that was really the genesis of the project. And then it took uh, many years of uh, collecting and, you know, it was great to get Daniel signed on um, at first as a, so when he was a student and now he's a colleague and, um, um, but it's, you know, uh, constantly discovering new texts and just trying to limit the scope of this has been quite a challenge, but um, it's, it's, it's been a really rewarding experience for me and uh, I hope to do something more with it expanded in some ways in the future. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Daniel? 
Uh, yeah, as Sunil mentioned, I was uh, still a grad student when this uh, project began. Um, and Sunil uh, told me about it and asked if I would be interested in joining. Um, at the time, I was working on a dissertation that examined the history of travel writing in Urdu, not uh, you know, just from women, but the, the, the entire um, genre and how it developed in Urdu. And so I was very fascinated with travel writing at the time. Um, I had already been in the process of collecting uh, travel accounts from my archival research. I had found um, some accounts uh, by women, but I was myself quite surprised at how difficult it could be to access, access them. Uh, so when uh, Sunil asked uh, and Siobhan asked if I was interested in joining, I of course said, I would love to, this sounds like a very exciting project. Um, and then over the, the next several years, um, I spent a lot of time uh, trying to search out new travelogues, trying to explore this question of why we have access to so few, uh, why they're so difficult to find, even in the original language. Um, and so as, as Sunil said, uh, things got quickly out of hand as we found more and more material to this day even though the book is out into the world, every time I find one, I, I get really excited and I have this urge to email Sunil and Siobhan and say, well, I've got another one. We can add a chapter. Um, so we may have to do a part two. <laughs> I don't know if anybody has um, an appetite for that, but the, uh, now that the wheels are in motion, um, it's clear that there's, there's, a, there's a huge field and that this book is just sort of opening the door to a lot of exciting new materials and questions. Mm -hmm. I have to say I was spending, you know, preparing for this interview, spending time with the anthology, and I'm just kind of floored by some of the things you found and some of the stories and some of like the archival material. So I'm kind of curious about what that process was like for you, like both of you are talking about going into archives. Um, and so like, how did you go about looking for the things that you looked for? Because this is like a vast like range of different materials from different languages, obviously different women from different class and um, racial identities and cultural identities and all of this stuff and different motives for traveling. So like Sunil, like what was the process of going and finding these sources? To be honest, my sort of experience with the archives wasn't as adventurous as, in, you know, as Daniel's, and he'll talk about that. Um, uh, I was, I, I did all the um, uh, Persian, um, you know, translations from Persian to English in this anthology and a couple of Urdu ones. The Urdu ones were what you would say, you know, sort of um, uh, texts that were not easily available. Um, Atiya Fezi and her sister Nazli Begum's um, narratives. Um, so those I uh, had sort of mini adventures, finding them, one of them in Pakistan, um, and then one of them, um, uh, you know, from the library of Professor Gail Minow, who's retired from UT Austin. Um, the Persian texts, which are mainly, you know, one um, uh, woman traveler, the uh, amazing widow of Mirza Khalil from the um, uh, 17th century, uh, her narrative, it's a poem, uh, was already published. Mm -hmm. And then all the others too from the late uh, second half of the 19th century and early 20th century, they were all published basically not easily available but you know I um, uh, I sort of was able to get access to those printed texts so um, I didn't really have to go um, very far 
although I'm sure if I had, um, there would have been um, more uh, sources that I would have uncovered. Um, but traveling to, you know, libraries in Tehran and um, other places was not an option uh, at this time. But I think we had enough material in Persian uh, to, um, but I, as I said, Daniel had more adventures in the field. Uh, yeah, I did. I did have a really good time uh, finding these texts. Before I say, um, before I talk about those experiences, I do, though, want to um, point out that a lot of the work of finding the text was actually done by an advisory board um, and by other scholars in the field. So while Siobhan Sunil and I are the editors of this book, we relied on the expertise of people from all different linguistic traditions, um, scholars around the world uh, in different countries. Um, so this was not you know, something that we could possibly do alone. Between the three of us, we speak a handful of languages, uh, but certainly not enough on our own to cover the breadth that the title of the book is asserting. Um, <clears throat> there were, um, in addition to the, the people who did supply us with uh, their findings, uh, there were also other scholars who kind of confirmed that in the linguistic traditions that they studied, uh, they were unable to find sources. Um, so we, we really relied on a huge uh, number of people. In terms of my own hunting for sources, I, I did have a lot of fun. Again, I relied immensely on the support of others. The text that I found for the volume came from Urdu, uh, Punjabi, uh, Indonesian, and perhaps, ben 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 well, uh, I helped find a scholar who found some text for us in Bengali as well. Um, to get these texts, I spent a lot of time in archives asking questions, um, asking people for suggestions. Some of the most, uh, uh, for me, some of the most fascinating accounts in the book come from unpublished materials that were given to me by family members, by descendants of these women who had traveled, whose families had cherished these stories and who had saved these materials and who really generously allowed us to copy them read them, translate them, and then ask them hundreds of questions so that we could write a biography of their relatives. So I'm immensely thankful to uh, all of the people in uh, Pakistan and India, particularly, who really went out of their way to make this project a success. And uh, it would not have been possible if people had not been so willing to share all of that material. Um, and then finally, there were, there were some more uh, conventional archival methods where I would go just pushing my way through uh, card catalogs, flipping through everything, looking for names that might um, suggest that there was a woman author. Um, and eventually, you know, it, it came together. Yeah. How long did it take to do this? Like how, like what was the genesis to the end as this book came out? Do you have like, because this is amazing to me. <laughs> we started... The, the project officially started in 2014, right, mm -hmm. Sunil? Right. Of course, we were talking about it before that, but yes. And already and researching a, materials yeah. from, uh, and, I, I started in 2010. Right. And you had a grant, right? You and Siobhan. Yeah. 
yeah. and on the, from the uh, Liver Hume Foundation. In, in the... Yeah, I would say we started in earnest with that grant in 2014-15. So mm-hmm. it was it was a, a solid four or five years of research, and then the the process of putting the book together took yeah. another two. It's astounding. Like I am like really blown away by what you brought together. And I love kind of the story behind how you were able to find sources. One of the things that you do in the introduction, Daniel, with Siobhan is really talk about like what um, the genre of some of the pieces and like our conceptions of what like travel writing is. These are not necessarily traditional travel logs you've come across. Some of these are diary entries. Some of these are from pamphlets. Some of these are beautiful poems of journeys to like Mecca or, you know, Karbala. Um, So can you talk a little bit about what the type of these sources actually are and how you were able to kind of like categorize them under this thing of travel writing? Sure, I'll say a few words and then I'll defer to Sunil, who's the real expert on questions of genre here, who teaches very popular courses on the history of of global travel writing. Uh, But, you know, one of the the challenges that that we faced was initially finding material. And the way that we found it was by really pushing to expand the traditional spaces in which we look for travel writing. and what exactly we consider travel writing to be. Um, That's sort of, I think, perhaps the instinctual uh, sense of what a travelogue is, is that it's a book written by an adventurer, an explorer, who went out into the world, saw something new. Um, The most famous travelogues that we think of tend to be by Europeans, typically men. Um, So the question here was how were the people uh, that we want to study in their own cultural contexts um, conveying a sense of their own travel journeys and what do they consider a journey to be? Um, so growing once, once we'd sort of shifted away from looking for books, like travel books that have been published by a press, then we were able to start finding a huge range of uh, travel narratives um, that, that not only you know give us access to these uh, travelers' perspectives, but also make us really rethink what it means to talk about travel writing as a genre um, in a in a multicultural uh, context. Um, so, for example, uh, uh, the one of the private diaries um, I found to be uh, a really fascinating travel account. This this diary had never been published, uh, but it had been read by uh, friends and family. It had been passed around. Um, this is, had its own logic to circulation. Um, it clearly told a travel story. Um, and so it was materials like that that, that let us really expand um, our access and understanding and allow us to stop saying, you know, there is no tradition of women's travel writing or Muslim women's travel writing. There is. We just need to think about how it was circulating, who was reading it, and how they wrote about it. But now I will defer to Sunil, who will say much wiser things than I just did. Not at all. Um, uh, I mean, you know, the 19th century and actually the 20th were completely new areas for me in terms of my research. I obviously, you know, read a lot of things, but in terms of um, studying and writing about um, uh, literary genres, um, my interest had been in, um, especially in 
poetry about cities um, in medieval and pre-modern Persian and Persianate um, literary sort of um, traditions. Um, and with, you know, along with that came the kind of very lyrical descriptions of cities and the inhabitants, um, and also uh, a kind of for the use of the trope of wonder, which we find in texts from the Thousand and One Nights to all kinds of other works. Um, what kind of amazed and delighted me when I first read some of the travel travelogues by men, Muslim men, like um, Ita Samuddin in the late 18th century, is that there was a continuation of such um, uh, tropes and um, and uh, in in the travel travel writing genre, which is appearing in a new form in prose, but with lots of poetry in it as well, and and so I I just really love this kind of continuity um, uh, from the pre-modern tradition to the modern, and I think that continues, um, uh, you know, into uh, the the kind of the the more uh, later travelogues in the 19th and 20th century. Actually, Muslim travelers never lost that sense of wonder um, that they always kind of celebrated in um, literature. Um, whether in poetry or in, you know, sort of fictional tales like The Thousand and One Nights, but here writing about actual places and actual people and experiences, there was still that kind of wonder. So uh, that really kind of drew me to um, this body of literature. Um, and, um, and uh, of course, there's a lot of other stuff going on too, because the 19th century is also when the novel becomes big in the in the kind of the languages that we are dealing with in this anthology in Arabic and uh, Persian and Urdu and others, Turkish. Um, the novel form is introduced from the West and um, <clears throat> and and writers are you know taking to the form, but um, but there's also an intersection with travel writing, so that the earliest kind of writers of the novel. Um, are also sometimes writing, um, you know, travelogues. And that's the same thing we see in the West, you know, in the Western tradition as well. For instance, Mark Twain was a travel writer and he also wrote novels. Um, and then later Graham Greene and, you know, in our times, um, Paul Theroux is, you know, one of the most uh, famous uh, travel writers and maybe less famous novelist. Um, but this intersection of different literary genres, first with poetry and more classical genres, and then later um, with the novel and kind of you know narrative forms. I found that very exciting um, uh, that you know all this sort of was happening um, around the same time. Mm -hmm. And you're kind of really situating us historically between, I think most of the letters you said were written from 1870s to kind of 1950s. There's a lot happening in terms of thinking about globally, but the, but the, um, each story also brings us to local context. So there's really this relationship between local and global, what's happening with the Muslim world. And I love this idea of like focusing on that through um, the writings of Muslim women, right? I think it's really fantastic. And maybe we could get into some of the, the pieces as we're talking about them quite abstractly. So the anthology is essentially divided into four sections and each section kind of has grouped um, certain pieces together. Um, and so the first one really deals with travel as pilgrimage. And I have to say, one of the things I really 
loved um, reading about this is kind of the quarantine practices. And I think it's because we're so sensitive because of we've all just are experiencing a pandemic now. And so this chapter or this section is really full of um, um, travels for religious purposes, women going to Hajj, which seems kind of like the obvious reason that maybe people or Muslim women are traveling. There's like practical negotiations, like do you need to have um, a male guardian with you and those things. Um, there's the actual experience of the ritual piety, but of course I'm completely drawn to the fact of how were these women being quarantined on this island and what was their like angst about that process and their complaints about it. But I don't know, are there things that stand out for you in this section or particular stories that you want to talk about? Or if you want to talk about the quarantine one, go for it. Sunil, do you want to go since Daniel's pointing at you? <laughs> quarantine forms, you know, especially if we look at the narrative of Hajiye Khanum, um, uh, Alavie, uh, a, a woman from Kerman. Um, she's quite a character um, in, you know, in, 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 as we can see throughout her narrative. And, and there is a brief section in, in this um, selection we translated uh, um, that talks about quarantine. And what I would say is that what was sort of, um, you know, amusing, but also kind of brings a humanistic sort of um, um, side to this experience is that, um, of course, what is common in all the kind of the pilgrimage writing is the, uh, the, the sense of sort of, you know, ecstasy and awe that these pilgrims have when they're either in the holy, you know, land in Mecca or in um, the Shia uh, places of pilgrimage in Karbala or Najaf, um, uh, and and there's a celebration of all Muslims coming together. I mean, this we know from other, um, you know, uh, people who who go on Hajj. Uh, but here we also so see that um, uh, during quarantine or during the kind of the voyage, um, uh, uh, you know, people from all sorts of backgrounds, social and national and ethnic backgrounds are brought together and our traveler, um, you know, this, the Haji from uh, Kerman, um, she's not very happy about this, you know, uh, and, and I think that really shows her in a very kind of, you know, uh, as I said, an amusing light, but as someone um, who's sort of very genuine in terms of her reaction to this, you know, she's not happy about um, the quarantine, of course, it's a stressful kind of, um, you know, time. Uh, I forget how long they have to be there, but um, uh, but but being thrown together with all kinds of people um, and the kind of the hygienic conditions, um, uh, uh, etc., uh, it it really sort of uh, unsettles our traveler there too. So yes, there's a lot we can um, we can kind of uh, empathize with in those uh, uh, sort of quarantine descriptions in the various texts. Mm -hmm. Daniel, so, anything? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I really loved about working with this material was being able to compare uh, descriptions mm -hmm. and experiences between the accounts. In some cases, you know, I was able to read different women writing about the same hotel right. in the same year right. or the same quarantine at the same time. Um, and, and often they had very different descriptions. Sometimes they were very similar, but it was really fascinating to be able to see the same thing described over and over again and mm -hmm. to get the richness of that experience, whether it's something um, 
obviously like do it, you know, doing the Hajj, you're going to get a lot of descriptions of that. But even the more mundane things like traveling in the ship or uh, going to a quarantine. When we were putting this anthology together, at least for me, one of the challenges was deciding which sections of the accounts to excerpt and anthologize. <clears throat> because on the one hand, you want to offer a sort of a broad picture of the types of things that these travelers are talking about. So looking at various different aspects. But at the same time, if you look at some of the same points of contact across travel accounts, then you get another kind of interesting approach. So in selecting these uh, excerpts, we tried to do a mix of repeating some of the same experiences, but also looking at different aspects. Um, and yeah, the quarantine is definitely one of the most fascinating because everybody was required to do it. They were all thrown together. Um, and generally people hated it a lot. It involved uh, having your, taking all your clothes off, having them fumigated, uh, being forced to take a kind of public shower. Uh, but interestingly, not everybody hated it. There's at least one account in the book where um, uh, Nur Begum is so excited to be on this religious journey. Uh, she invokes the phrase, everybody kind of invokes the phrase, um, uh, you know, uh, this, you know, this journey is easy because it's for a religious purpose, something like that. Nur Begum actually means it. Um, and she's so excited to see all these different women um, join together, even though they're all miserable, they're all doing it for a religious purpose. And she thinks that that's beautiful. So these kind of different approaches really, I think, bring a kind of, um, each chapter has a new flavor uh, right. that, that keeps things lively. Yeah. And I think it's both like the fact that it is mundane, like it is kind of an everyday aspect, like, oh, I have to spend 10 days here and I've missed my ship because I was supposed to get this thing. So I was stuck here for another two days mundane. But you also get a lot of perspective. I think it was um, Sikinder Begum's entry where she was really talking about um, how like there was differences between Indian Muslim women and Arab Muslim women. And so there's actually some, like, there's a sense that maybe perhaps even though you're participating in like a global experience or this idea of a unity of all Muslims, all of a sudden you're encountering other Muslim women who are culturally or ethnically different. And then you start realizing actually there's a difference between us, even though we are like Muslim women, like technically there's also a difference. So there's a moment of um, suggestive unity, but also like realization of tangible difference of perhaps tendencies, culturally dress, attire, speaking, personality, and all of that stuff. Um, and yeah. food as well, I think, you know, food, yeah. there's a lot of mention about foods in these uh, accounts. And yeah, sure would, that would have, yeah. Which also raises like these really practical questions, like how are these women traveling, be it for Hajj or for any of the other reasons? Like what are the mechanisms or modes of travel, for instance, that you're dealing with in these sources? Some are by, um, yeah, go for it. Well, especially in the earlier period, I think, you know, uh, you know, the women would not be traveling alone. Mm, right. In the 20th century, we do see that a few of them, like uh, Siddiqui Dolatabadi is going from Iran to study in Europe. But earlier, and especially for pilgrimage, they would not be traveling alone. And we know from some accounts that, um, you know, the, uh, the kind of the, the great preparations that took place in terms of provisions, like the Begum of Bhopal to the Sikandar you know, the, it, it was a massive kind of expedition. But of course, she was 
royalty. So she had an entourage and, you know, and she's great about actually listing things and describing, um, you know, how they prepared for the journey, but um, others, they don't. Um, what I was intrigued um, in with the 19th century um, Iranian women is that as, um, and some of these parts were not tra translated, um, but we tried to include some of them to give a sense of the journey, how they went as they leave home from usually from Tehran, um, you know, they, they're going through the sort of the countryside, their own, mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, kind of nation. Um, and they see the differences between city life and provincial life. And we get hints about, you know, how they use the postal system, which was just starting then. Um, and how they communicated with friends back home, writing letters. And of course, as time goes on, the technology only improves, you know, and, um, uh, and so that um, the means of transportation sort of are probably more comfortable and uh, faster. Um, but uh, it, it's an intriguing aspect of um, these narratives is what, what did it mean to actually travel physically, um, you know, whether on land or sea? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the second section is dealing with travel as emancipation and politics. And I also really, really enjoyed this section. And and <laughs> um, somebody has to deal with this. <laughs> but I mean, there were so many amazing stories. I think there are, you know, the stories of Egyptian women who are thinking about like uh, the context of 1920s, uh, both Huda Sharawi and Amina Sayyid thinking about um, you know, they were traveling to India to go to like these feminist conferences and they're writing about that. Um, um, Suharti Sawarto in Russia, who's an Indonesian woman who's a communist and is celebrating Indonesian independence in Russia. I was like really blown away by that story. Um, and then there's also like really like, again, like this mundane aspect. Um, I think it was Salma um, Ekram who's in New York City and she's talking about the bland food in New York City and having to ride the subway. Yes. So like, we're really talking about a range from people who are mobilizing politically from you know maybe feminist uh, political reasons um you know and then there's like turkish women who are in new york city and just complaining about food right and how tasteless it is so broad range but any thoughts on how some of these pieces came together for you both or yeah it was um i guess it was a you know category that really sort of um came out in the writing that you know, when, once you um, sort of separated the, the other kinds of um, texts, uh, education, um, pilgrimage, and um, obligation and pleasure, this was, um, there are fewer texts in this section, but they're all as, you know, the examples you gave, amazing. Um, and, and the one that um, I am really sort of a big fan of, and it was um, uh, by uh, Halide Edip, the Turkish um, uh, writer who was also a novelist, by the way, um, and you know her. She wrote the work both in English and in Ottoman Turkish, um, and uh, traveling in um, uh, South Asia in the 30s. It's an amazing kind of a document of you know observing not just the politics of the pre-partition years. In you know she was in 
uh, Peshawar, Lahore, Delhi, Hyderabad, you know, Bombay, um, but also just the, the social life of the times, um, you know, as, and of course, these were the years where, um, because of the, uh, the kind of the, the after years of the Khilafat movement, um, there was still a deep connection between Turkey and um, Indian Muslims. Um, and so that strong sense of kind of, you know, not just sisterhood, but uh, of, um, of kind of this, uh, of uh, Muslimness sort of connected, Muslimness comes out in her text as well. Yeah, I would just say that this is a really interesting section in just how diverse it is, mm -hmm. uh, both in terms of the destinations and the kinds of questions that the authors are interested in. I agree that the, uh, the Indonesian text in here, the Sohati Sohato, is really fascinating um, and, and really does, a, a, it kind of encapsulates the, the diversity of approaches to these questions. We mentioned in the introduction that, you know, just because they're Muslim women, they don't necessarily care that much about religion. And you can really see that come out in, in this text where um, it's a group of Indonesian women who have gotten a sponsored trip to the USSR so that they can see how great it is. And they, so they too are not just um, Russia, but they also go to Uzbekistan um, and they look at the kinds of social changes that are happening in a Muslim society there. And they're very excited about everything they see. They're very fascinated. Um, so this, I, I feel like this section just has a lot of really uh, interesting and diverse approaches to uh, the, the broader themes of the book. Yeah, and I think the, the time period of these sections, I think it's just really wonderful for anybody who's teaching kind of this moment politically and to get women's perspective of some of the um, like quote unquote transnational alliances that are being formed, right? And I think it's really fascinating. But you also have really kind of practical aspects of some women are just thinking about, you know, what it means to be out of Purta or like not be veiling if they're in a context where that's not the majority practice, right? Like there's a lot of those questions that are also following as you're traveling in terms of what is, you know, Islamic piety, what is this supposed to look like? How am I supposed to to dress and some women are just kind of experimenting in New York City of not having to cover and you get a lot of this also in the travel as education section particularly you know the story of the nurse who's in Ohio I think who's just trying to figure out like what is her attire supposed to be or um the women who are in studying you know in various, I think Leeds is one of the institution um, in, in the UK where they're talking about, well, how do you celebrate Eid in, in London or in any of those places? So there are these other, you know, questions of identity and being a Muslim that are following them as they're also experiencing like a different world that they're in as well. So I'm not sure if you want to pick up on any of those themes, Daniel. Well, one, one thing that you reminded me of um, is that I, I think a lot of these texts are also shaped by the intended audience right. and the language that they're being written in. And so some of the pieces in this chapter are you know, written in Turkish for Turkish speakers, but some of them have been written um, in English uh, uh, for an audience that's not necessarily at home, um, or they've been written in French, I believe. Uh, so the, 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 the way that these questions are being approached in this chapter is also really diverse and that the, the audience is shifting a little bit here. Mm -hmm. I don't know if maybe Sunil, you have 
any I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yes, absolutely. With the audience, especially with um, you know the Fezzi sisters, Atia and Nasli, because um, um, they were writing for letters to their sister Zehra in Bombay, um, and somehow that then got to um, you know that they, the letter started appearing as weekly columns in women Urdu women's journals. Um, yeah, uh, and and then at some point, um, they were kind of um, edited by uh, Zehra Begum, the sister who was at home, um, and and the uh, you know the, these two works appeared as books, um, probably meant for private circulation, or at least Nazli Begum because she was, uh, uh, you know, royalty, uh, um, but. Um, but it, this brings us to the question of the different versions of the, uh, the 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 narrative too. That you know uh, what is being written for family sort of you know consumption, um, then what is written for the Muslim sisters in women's journals. Of course, men read those too, but they were mainly for women, you know, readers, and then for a more um, public sort of readership. Um, and um, I, I was able to explore a little bit of, you know, what gets left out and what gets, um, you know, kind of what is emphasized more obviously, more personal things, especially, if, um, for instance, in the case of Atia Fezi who was studying in London in 1906, 1907, um, uh, uh, you know, her kind of just hints about her romantic life you know, which she was um, <clears throat> very friendly with uh, 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 Muhammad Iqbal, the Urdu and Persian poet, um, you know, it, it gets completely written out in the, you know, in the versions for uh, public consumption. Um, but it was a very important aspect of her journey. So there's always a subtext to many of these. And and Atiya is one of the, uh, these, the, the sisters, actually Atiya and Nazli, uh, the two um, that I worked on a lot more so that I was really able to get, you know, uh, uh, deeper into understanding their um, lives and, and the, the context in which um, their travels took place and, the, and how they wrote about them. Yeah, and I think there was like a similar context or subtext with um, Mirza Khalil too, in terms of as she's traveling when her husband has passed and she's going to Hajj and there is this friend that she encounters and yes. suggests that this could be um, uh, a same-sex relationship, but we're not quite sure in terms of like um, what their context of their relationship is, but she does write about it very interestingly as well, right? And so there's a lot of pieces that are in between. Absolutely. And, and that, you know, um, there are actually two um, texts that were written as in verse in the anthology, I think two, right, Daniel? The Mirza Khalil and then Noor. Uh, Begum. So yes, and because she's using um, the the Persian uh, poetic form, um, you know, with sort of the uh, the the kind of the usual tropes and imagery and metaphors, um, uh, and and this whole kind of the poetics of the beloved that comes from the Persian Ghazal and you know love poetry, uh, 
A, a lot is sort of, yes, is ambiguous there, which is the kind of the aesthetic, uh, you know, pleasure that um, Persianate love poetry provides to listeners and readers. And you get that there too. Yes, there sort of, uh, you know, this intriguing reference to the friend who's the beloved, but then what happens? Why, you know, in their reunion after so many years um, that they don't, connect more deeply and they part again it almost seems like it's a scripted kind of you know narrative that comes right out from a you know gazelle or a kind of a love poem yeah yeah no I remember reading that part and thinking oh there's something going on here that there's some kind of either unrequited love or if something has not you know, there's a past mm-hmm. here that we're Absolutely. not privy to and you want to know more right and I think those are the moments of some of the pieces here that are really fantastic because really as you're saying humanizes these women who are just also people who are dealing with feelings emotion you know politics all of the stuff right it's fantastic um the last section is really travel as obligation and pleasure of course as someone who's interested in sufism is really i'm happy to read princess john Hera's, um you know mystical meetings in kashmir but there's a lot of really fun pieces here as well traveling for business um traveling with family right and so what really kind of brought together this last section for you in terms of some of the pieces that are here and i think we're also going more into like a bit more later into the 20th century as well so there's a little bit of a different um right Except for Princess Jahana who's yeah. the yeah. what you know the the second of the two um, you know seventeenth century women, the others are all as you know from the nineteenth and twentieth. So, um, by the way, we have you know three centuries of travel writing, but I think um, uh, you know we, we would have had four, but one is missing. There's nothing from the eighteenth century. You know, amazingly, maybe there's something out there, but we never found anything. Um, Yes, so this is also a miscellaneous kind of section where, um, uh, you know, there's travel as uh, for reasons um, other than education or pilgrimage, which are the, were the main reasons. But, um, um, and, and in, the, in, in the case of Princess Jahanara, her narrative um, is not overtly a travelogue. It's mm-hmm. really kind of, um, a, 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 you know, a sort of autobiography, a kind mm-hmm. of... Uh, of you know a, a, a story of her um how she's drawn to uh, sufism and a specific sufi master mullah shah in kashmir and her travels with her father the mughal emperor shah jahan um, but i was struck by how um uh, travel played such a central role in in her kind of journey to sufism mm-hmm. because um you know they would uh, the court would travel from uh, Agra or Delhi to Lahore and then to Srinagar um, and this became part of and kind of a very frequent ritual of um, you know of uh, 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 of uh, this kind of it, 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 you can compare it to sort of her mystical um, journey uh, in these places looking for uh, Sufi masters. Um, Jahanar also has a pilgrimage text, um, one to Ajmer, but we decided not to include that one because it's also been translated and included in other another anthology of Sufi women's writings. Yeah, yeah. This 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 last section is, um, I mean, it's called "Travels Ab- Obligation and Pleasure," but it really is a mix of. Uh, you know, some of these trips did not sound very pleasurable at all. Um, <laughs> but 
uh, you know, the, the a lot of these uh, authors were traveling for multiple reasons at the same time. Maybe they had uh, a particular objective, but they took side trips. And so this section really emphasizes the that the kind of different ways that people could combine different kinds of purposes into the same journey. One of my favorite sections from here is um, the Indonesian uh, piece by Nyonya Olia Salim, who's visiting the U.S. with her husband, who has been appointed to the Indonesian embassy. And as a part of that stay, they spend a lot of time driving around the country in uh, in a car. And so she's she's so you when you, you join her on this trip, she's really trying to unpack what's going on in America in the 1950s, which is not a you know a, it's a very complex time. She's seeing a lot of things that seem really awful, and she can't understand them. And she's trying to figure out why people would you know she's visiting the South, um, and that so that kind of that that mix of being on an official mission, um, but also being a tourist comes out and, and in, in, in really fascinating ways. And so this for me is a really fun section to just to read through and think through. Mm. Um, Another thing about this section is that um, some of the destinations that these travelers are going to are unusual. Right, right. Um, so they're not the usual places um, we saw, you know, the uh, holy places um, or um, Europe, but from Kashmir to Khokan in Central Asia, the Himalayas, um, and then um, uh, uh, the uh, sec, you know, section I translated on by Shams Pahlavi, the daughter of the Shah of Iran. And as the Shah um, um, is, uh, Reza Shah is going into exile, we have a description of their sojourn in Mauritius and then via South Africa, then she leaves. Um, that part of the world to go back to Iran. So that we thought that was also, you know, we wanted to um, have a sort of a diversity of destinations as well in these narratives. And you kind of notice that throughout, I think, all of the anthology too, because, you know, you have someone going to Finland, you know, so it's like, it's also after you kind of get out of the, the pilgrimage section, you're kind of also going to all these different parts of the world right. as well, right? It's not just Turkey to India, for instance, right? But I think the Indonesia-USSR connection just like blew my mind, right? And going to Finland also or Switzerland. So there's yes. all these really amazing geographical spaces that they're going into. I mean, I think we would be remiss to not mention that obviously the women that are captured here, I think, except maybe one that you had mentioned, which was um, Noor Begum from a village in uh, the Punjab. These are women that are likely, you know, these are individuals with power, with class, with status and capacity to be traveling, right? And so um, how do we keep that in the back of our minds as we're kind of entering these stories and unpacking these stories? And how do we think about like the voices of women who are not perhaps included um, because of um, because of the lack of wealth or the, because of the lack of family connection to royalty, you know? Absolutely, that's a very important point. And uh, um, I mean, the, I guess the, the obvious thing is that um, women who were from elite families or who had connections to power and means were able to write and travel. Mm -hmm. So for instance, you know, um, maybe other women who were with our writers on their trip never got a chance to write 
right? But um, we don't even know if, you know, such uh, narratives exist, they might, but um, there would be very few, but it, it's, um, it's to do with literacy, it's to do with access to, you know, writing and then um, uh, uh, sort of uh, the uh, dissemination of the written work, whether it was uh, unpublished or published. Um, but we see as sort of time goes on, I mean, as we get towards the 20th century, um, it is still kind of, you know, educated and women with means, but not necessarily royalty as we saw earlier. Earlier we saw there were, you know, uh, like Princess Jahanara obviously is royalty. And then with the Qajar Iranian women, many of them have um, connections with the court. Um, but we start seeing, you know, um, Atiya Fazi is a, from a rich family, but they are kind of a merchant family from Bombay who really value education. Um, you know, we have Siddiqui Dolat Abadi, who's from um, Isfahan in Iran, who's, um, you know, sort of from a middle-class family. So we have, we get other uh, women like that as time goes on, that it's, um, uh, travel is not restricted to just, uh, to elite women. No, I, I agree with that. As somebody who largely focused on accounts from the 20th century in this book, um, I would say that, yeah, I, I, I was rarely working with royalty. Um, I was uh, rarely, again, working with people who were sort of lower in the socioeconomic stratum. Um, generally, the people, uh, there, there's nobody who's really traveling in the third class section of the ship. Mm -hmm. um, but there are there are people who are, are traveling in sort of the second class section. Um, and so we definitely need to emphasize that uh, these, there is a certain inevitable uh, focus on people who are more well off uh, simply because of, again, the ability to write, uh, the ability to read, the leisure time to be able to represent their travels um, and so on. Um, but there, there is at least some diversity in there. And Noor Begum, again, does stand out in that she's particularly rural and not particularly wealthy, but seems to have made a name for herself simply through her poetic skill. Yeah, yeah. I think that one really stood up for me in terms of kind of the experiences and social situation of some of the other folks you're writing is that... I mean, she's, as, as I think we see in that section, at a, she's traveling on... She's, she goes on Hajj in the 1930s. By that time, most of the better off travelers in the volume are taking cars right. to go between Jeddah and Mecca and Medina. Noor Begum doesn't have that kind of cash, so she is, she's taking a, ta a camel, right. um, which we don't see other travelers doing. And so you get a very different perspective when you're traveling between Mecca and Medina on a camel. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's why it really stood, you know, stood out for me is fantastic as all the accounts. Um, I know, Sunil, we were talking, but I mean, what do you have in terms of advice for some of our listeners of how to incorporate this into courses that they're teaching? I know you just started a course, Sunil, um, in the summer, uh, really aligned with this topic. Do you have any suggestions for our listeners? about teaching um, strategies? Yes, I, um, I was fortunate enough to use um, uh, some excerpts from um, this anthology um, just as it was published. And, um, and uh, I must say the students 
um, really appreciated kind of the diversification of the syllabus because, again, in the um, you know when I um, previously taught this course, um, we were restricted to translations, you know, from Ibn Battuta and um, uh, Eblia Chalabi and you know in modern times Itasamuddin, etc. But um, having um, you know I used at least half a dozen of these excerpts. They were the right kind of I think you choose from different sections, but also the pre-modern ones, as I mentioned to you, that I was a really kind of uh, surprised, but in a very pleasant way, that students reacted very well to the, the narrative of the widow of Mirza Khalil, mm -hmm. uh, that something really struck kind of a chord with them. Um, so yes, you don't have to assign the entire book, but um, you know, uh, I think uh, representative excerpts from different sections, um, they work really well. Yeah. yeah. Daniel, do you have any advice? No, I mean, I think that because each chapter and the excerpts are fairly short, you can assign two in a particular class. For me, I've in experimenting with these in my own classes, I find that trying to create dialogue between two different uh, travelers, between two different perspectives, um, is both very productive and also really doesn't allow for any sort of essentialization or saying, well, this woman said this, and so this represents uh, this particular kind of viewpoint. Um, there's so much diversity in the text that I would suggest bringing in one or two different sections um, that really bring that diversity out and creating a conversation around it. Yeah, and I think both of you are right in terms of like the possibilities that exist here. And I was even thinking as I was reading, like I could usually easily use certain pieces in like an intro to Islam class or a senior seminar in gender and Islam or literary theory, you know what I mean? Or in travel writing. And I would also imagine if you were like a high school teacher or something like that, this is so accessible and written in such an accessible way that it really doesn't need to just be at the university level. It could really transform, go into um, other just general education settings. You're trying to learn about Muslim Thank women. You. Yeah. political situations, travel, it's just the possibilities are endless. And I wanted to make sure our listeners like got that highlighted. Um, is there anything else that you want to say that perhaps I haven't gotten to? I mean, there's like, it's 45 different chapters, small chapters of different women and stories. And obviously it was impossible to get through all of it. Um, but is there something that you want to mention that maybe I didn't ask about the anthology or you want to get across to the listeners? I mean, I would like to, I, at the beginning of this conversation, Sunil pointed out that there are multiple anthologies of travel writing by women from the Western tradition. Mm. I would like to see that be the case mm. for this material as well. Yeah. I, you know, as much as I would love for everybody to read this book um, and talk about this book, um, I don't want this to be the last right. book on the topic. So the takeaway... Um, that I would suggest here is that this is a start and that perhaps this book points in a particular direction, uh, shows the possibilities in 45 very short chapters of exploring this field. Um, as, as I mentioned earlier, I keep finding texts, um, some of which are, are really fascinating. And if, if I had found them earlier, we would have loved to be able to include them here. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I'd say I'm up to, I'm in the list of dozens that I've found since, you know, the publisher cut us off from adding things. <laughs> so I, I really think that there's so much more to be done. Different uh, people 
different scholars should approach this material maybe in ways that Siobhan, Sunil and I did not. Um, and, and I would just love to see a field kind of grow out of this. Yeah, I love that. And, and definitely to extend the chronology, because we had to stop somewhere in the mid 20th century. But there's been a lot of amazing, um, you know, travel writing has really taken off since then. Um, so the second half of the 20th century, the 21st century, um, there's lots of great travel writing um, by Muslim women. Um, a, a lot on, you know, blogs and vlogs as well that we use and watch in class. Um, so yes, I agree with Daniel. And not even not even the field per se, but even the, the individual authors. Some of these chapters deserve to be books, yeah, yeah. which we couldn't do, but somebody could. Um, these are really fascinating, understudied people who deserve and need to be studied in, in greater detail. So I hope to see you know, books or articles come out on these these materials that we could only write about for 10 pages. Yeah, and I agree. And I would read books on some of these women because their stories are just like wild with intrigue and all of this stuff. It's just amazing to me. Um, and so are there things that you're working on right now that our listeners should know about in terms of either individual projects or are you thinking there's going to be a volume two or are we just kind of talking about it right now? <laughs> we haven't thought about it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, no right pressure. <laughs> but what um, uh, Siobhan and I are doing is I've finished uh, the draft of a translation of Nazli Begum's um, uh, Travelogue to Europe in 1908, um, uh, following on her sister's Travelogue, which we translated and published together. Mm -hmm. So uh, hopefully that will see the light of day soon. It's, awesome. a, it's a fascinating work, very different from her sister's. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. and Daniel? Um, I am working, I, I love the account by Begum Sarbulan mm -hmm. Jung so much that I've decided to translate the whole thing, wow. uh, which I, I have finished now doing. Um, I'm just finishing writing the introduction. So hopefully in the next year or two, a full book on Begum Sarbulan Jung and her travel account will be available. Um, that account is really fascinating because uh, she and her husband both published accounts of the same journey in quite different ways. So this this book that I'm trying to put together, you know, puts their two perspectives um, into, you know, in into one. Um, that's so that so that's cool. that's where I'm focusing now. That's amazing. Well, thank you so much for all the work that you're doing. I'm a huge fan, and it's such a pleasure to have connected with you both, Sunil and Daniel, today. And uh, we're sad that Siobhan couldn't join us, but definitely she's also part of this project. Um, so hopefully we'll be able to connect again in the future. And thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Siobhan. Yeah, thank you. And that was my conversation with Daniel Makrovitz and Sunil Sharma about their edited volume with Siobhan Lombard-Hurley, Three Centuries of Travel Writing, by Muslim women. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of New Books in Islamic Studies on the New Books Network, and I hope you have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time. Bye.